0: Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. It's a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Good morning, Bradley. So, uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of things today. You and I kind of had a lot over the weekend that we wanted to cover. So, the Supreme Court decision on Section 230, Ron DeSantis entering the race, uh, how Harris, de- how Biden deals with the Kamala Harris problem, uh, Rob Emanuel on gay rights in Japan, uh, AI regulation, self-driving cars, tipping—so um, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, I did not just because I know we've been starting off this way for the last ten weeks or so. I did not watch Succession last night. I was at the Mets game, um, and by the time I got home, and it was a fast game. It was two hours and seven minutes. Started at seven ten. The last out was recorded at nine uh, seventeen. And you're liking that the quick, the Fantastic. quick baseball. Okay. But here's the problem: by the time I got home. And I said, okay, I could now put this on. I know I'm gonna wake up sometime around 5, 5.30. And I know that I am a healthier, happier, better person if I get seven hours of sleep. So it was one of those, I could go to bed now and get seven hours, or I could watch a session, which I wasn't, I could have stayed up to do it, and then get less, and it was just a binary choice. And I have to say, I'm very proud of myself for making the right choice. Nice, Bradley. We're all, we're all proud as, of you. As I turn fifty, <laughs> I am finally You're making some good decisions. I'm finally <laughs> learning, yeah, how my body works and how to listen to it.
1: Okay, so we won't talk about the the episode, other than to say, I think it was one of the. I think it may be the best one so far of the season, and not because of like any one thing. Just there's. There's just a lot of great scenes in there and a lot of great stuff. But here's we're just going to isolate our discussion since we obviously can't talk about last night's episode. And why would we? Since the final episode coming up Sunday, it's the end of the entire series. They're like, you know, it, it's pretty awesome that they're just ending on a super high note. The succession is like the most, I don't know if it's the most popular, because who, who can even measure that these days? But it's definitely got the media's attention and the attention of people. It's in, the, zeit,
0: the, the cultural elite
1: zeitgeist. The cultural elite zeitgeist. So... The question I have is, like, let's just try to go to the very end. The, the, the absolute—so uh, the, the Sopranos famously ended in this really kind of abstract, vague way where they're, like, sitting in a diner listening to and
0: a Journey song. They're not Which, listening to by it. By the way, I, I know it was very controversial. Most people didn't like it. I really liked the Sopranos ending. I loved it. I loved yeah. it too. I, I just and the funny thing is you just remember it, right? Yeah. Like like uh, right. I don't know how I don't remember how the wire ended or breaking, uh, breaking battle breaking Bad actually remarkable, I remember how that ended. But like you're right, a lot of great shows you don't quite remember the the, the final scene whereas in Surpris you'll never forget it.
1: Yeah, and it and it, it every time I hear the song I think about it, you know. Totally. Like, Although um, I
0: remember the time thinking that my cable box went out for a second. Oh, really? You thought I was th- confused. You thought it was playing, like, from next door? Like, what do you I mean? didn't know what it was. No, no, no. Just, like, for a second, it went blank. The screen, and I'm like, fuck. Cable watch I, I missed. Oh, something's happening. I'm not going to miss the end of The Sopranos. And then I realized it was. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Okay,
1: so final scene. Yeah. Let's just stipulate that all three siblings are in it. They're all okay. alive. Uh, it, it seems unlikely one of them's going to die. Well,
0: did any of them die last
1: night? Um... No. OK. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem, it doesn't feel like they're going to go there. Yeah, but who I'm, knows?
0: Yeah. But, yeah.
1: but here's, here's the terms that I think that we can we can, we can posit. A, we don't, we're not trying to get it right or anything, right? But the, the, the thing that, the, the trick, which is not that much of a trick, but everything's up-down. So the moment you think somebody's in ascendance of the three siblings... They hit a brick wall. Like, that, that's the very first episode, as you remember, of the whole, the, the it's not really the pilot, but the first episode of the first season. Um, Kendall goes in. He's trying to close this deal. He's expecting to be named the successor to his father. It's all set up, and he's, like, really anxious to get it done. And then the episode closes with, like, he's not getting it. Right. Yeah. So that's like the classic. That's right. the whole succession so, game plan, right yep. there. It's like yep. expectations. He's doing it. It's gonna happen. Bam! He hits the brick wall. Yep. So what? Ha- they guess they all got to simultaneously I mean, hit a brick wall. Is that what has to happen?
0: Here's the thing. So, so if you think about it, so the the point, the message of the show is unlimited money and power and status and influence does not necessarily equal happiness. Right. That's the underlying point of the show. These people couldn't have more of all of those things, and yet they're miserable fucking human beings. That's number one. Number two, there was a scene this year at some point where Logan said to the kid about his kids, "You know, I love them, but they're idiots or they're useless or something like that." They're
1: not serious people, is what. Not serious said. people. So, right. yeah. so
0: look, whether he loved them or not, or whether he was capable of love or not, unclear. Um, but he was right that they're not serious people slash useless slash. Idiots. And so the show has to end that way because that's the essence of what it is and who they are. So they have to fail, just like Kendall failed at the end of the first episode of, of the season one. And so without like knowing, you know, it, there's sort of a left on the tarmac, the either you know, Madsen buys the company and they all end up sort of just, you know, unriched but unemployed, or Jerry and Frank and Carl somehow figure out how to wrestle away control from the kids, and they're left out in the cold, or the Pierce ends up buying ATN. Something where they still have money, but at the end of the day, they have no real accomplishment or status or anything that the rest of the world would take seriously, and that's what they so desperately crave, and the denial of that is the point of the show. So they're left in a boardroom alone,
1: or they're left walking the streets of New York, or, like, just how do you see the credits
0: rolling? Like, you know, there's this cinematic, like, I always like when they have those scenes at the heliport at Battery Park, you know, where they're just standing there and the helicopters take off without them. Um, Or they can't get on. Yeah, or, (laughs) Or like, this is sort of too cliche, but, like, you know, they try to come into the ATN building and like their ID doesn't work anymore or something like that or, you know, so, something that just is a, a symbol of their abject failure and them knowing it completely. Okay, I think that's a very logical, well-argued point,
1: and yet I can't see them doing that.
0: Okay, so how but, would they but,
1: do it? How, no, how? I, it's, it's, it's that I, yeah. but the, the funny thing is there's two extremes, right? The, the one extreme is they end in failure and they're totally disgraced. And there's no hope, right? There's no hope. They're done. So the other side, which is, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how or why they kind of went to uh, in, in the second to last episode last night, is there was this moment of communion between the three of them that felt really genuine, OK? And it, it, it didn't necessarily last. But there was this moment where the three of them are a unit and are operating together just for a minute. And I have to say it was extremely well done, and it was the it was it it showed the um, kind of the, the it showed that they can't end there the whole season. They kind of did it already. just so so they 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 showed a moment where they had actual compassion for each other.
0: Well, right. And, and and as we've discussed in this podcast a lot, you know, what all happiness science teaches us is that the two things in life that produce actual happiness are relationships and fulfillment, not money and status and power, at least not an unlimited amount of it, and certainly not running. ATN. And so perhaps that the story ends in a more uplifting way where they still lose. I can't see a world where they win from a corporate standpoint, but they do actually... They win as point. humans? Yeah, they realize what actually matters and, and yeah. they embrace see, that, which, you know, they're all still pretty young on the show. Kendall's got to be, what, in his 40s, mid-40s, and the other two Well, are he just had his their... 40th birthday party. That was a couple seasons ago, right? No, but whatever. Oh, was it? I oh, think yeah, so. yeah, yeah you're whatever. right. Oh, my God. Right. I, I, and there I, were others, too, right. yeah. and they are like, called right. mid-30s. Right. What am I thinking? So, like... They do have a lot of life ahead of them. And so honestly, if, if they end the show realizing what matters in life and better position to pursue that, um, they would be a lot better off than if any of them became CEOs. So, so you heard it
1: here. Bradley says, Kendall's
0: working in a soup kitchen on the Bowery. Um, I think he would do that once for some sort of performative effect <laughs> uh, and then never again. Okay, I, I actually see, sometimes you see that at the soup kitchen that I work at, Um where people come in you can tell they're there because there's there's two types of people there's the uh, AA 12 steppers and this is sort of part of their program and that's fine but they never they never last or um, there's people who like have this big idea and they're going to volunteer at a soup kitchen and again the the hard part is not doing it on a random Thursday. The hard part is doing it every Thursday. Right. Um, and so I would imagine that if Kendall were to join us uh, this Thursday at 8 a.m., he would not last. So I
1: think they're going They're going to have to go kind of rando like the, the Sopranos. They're going to have to do some... Maybe they'll get killed in a diner. Killed
0: in a diner. Like someone just comes in and just takes them all out. yeah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so to kind of combine the two. Anyway, all, right, all right, let's um ha- onto on, on 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 public, ser- public affairs. Serious thing. Um,
1: Supreme Court rules for Google, Twitter yeah. on terror-related so content. They not,
0: nine nothing, so it's not even like a Republican-Democrat type thing. And look, <laughs> what, let's explain what happens. So, so, so two Section those- Two Thirty is as listeners are so tired of hearing. They're is not the, tired. They, they listen for this. Is the law that protects uh, social media platforms, so YouTube, Google, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is. Um, It protects them from liability for the content posted by their users, which is how the Internet has become so wildly toxic, while the companies have every incentive to continue to make it even more toxic. That's how they make more money, because it allows them to sell more advertising. Um, If you were to revoke Section 230 and they lost this liability protection, then they would be forced to moderate the Internet uh, in a responsible way. So I've been a big advocate for that happening. Um, There was an attempt, uh, two different lawsuits, one against Twitter, one against Google, that made it to the Supreme Court, that tried to show that um, this was that, that effectively um, the companies were liable um, despite Section 230 because uh, of you know other constitutional arguments. They were weak arguments; they failed. I think what the court made very clear is like, look, we may not think Section 230 is good policy, but that's not our job. Our job is to look at the constitutionality of any given uh, question and decide whether or not it, 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 is, it does uphold the Constitution or does not, Section 230, from a constitutional standpoint, is perfectly legal and constitutional, which means the courts aren't going to save us, right? So if, if, if you want the Internet to be better, if you want there to stop being sites on Instagram that teach teenage girls how to cut themselves or how to purge after eating, um, then the, the legislature is going to have to act, Right. Um, You know, the agencies can't do it on their own. I've I've talked to the FTC about it. The courts just made it very clear they're not going to do it on their own. So it comes down to Congress. And what's sort of remarkable about about this one is everyone actually agrees. Trump and Biden both supported the same position in, in 2020. Biden called for the repeal of Section 230 in his State of the Union address this year. It polls incredibly well. It's incredibly bipartisan. And yet just due to the dysfunction of of our government and our system, um, it doesn't happen. And so balls back in your court, Congress. um, And look, this is one of those issues where like, I understand that that doing anything that works with the other side gets you yelled at by your base. And I understand that between Google and Meta and Apple and Amazon and Microsoft and Twitter and everyone else, there are a zillion lobbyists pressuring you. And I also know that now one of those people is Elon Musk, who's scary because he has a giant, giant empire of followers and money. With all of that said, you will be rewarded politically for doing the right thing here because parents, as parents, want their kids to be safer on the internet. Parents understand that we can't really control, at least once our kids hit teenage years, our kids' sort of access to to things online. And so as a result, online itself has to be better. It's only going to be better if you make it better. You can do that just by repealing this one law, balls in your court, um, you pretend that you ran for office because you wanted to help people, start fucking acting like it.
1: You saw that uh, Montana banned TikTok?
0: Yeah. So is that,
1: that, that I guess everybody immediately uh, decided that that didn't actually matter, that it's not going to be actually enforceable, and that it's not going to happen, um, or at least not right away. But um, what's the significance of that? I mean, the
0: significance is just to show that, that someone had to kind of break the seal, right? Like politically now a legislative body and a governor have agreed that something is such a harm, whether from a national security standpoint or a child psychology standpoint or anything else, that it ought to not exist, right? So is Montana's law constitutional? Highly doubt it. I don't think they have the ability to, to make, you know, to violate the First Amendment in, in, in return for national security. They don't have that kind of power. Um, but I do think that it does sort of give further encouragement to Congress to say, look, um, you can act on this thing, and you will be okay politically if you do so.
1: Did you see... Uh, do you think it'll lead to an exodus of teenagers from Montana?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that so Those all moved to... What's right next to
1: Montana? Wyoming? Wyoming. Yeah. No,
0: Montana's a really small population, like 500,000 people or something like that, because at one point, Lyle and I were trying to decide if there were more Mets fans or people in Montana, and we realized there were not only more Mets fans, but they're exponentially... More Mets fans than there are people in Montana. Montana
1: just yeah. for the record, has 1.1 million people. Still a lot more. Mets Wyoming. Fans.
0: Wyoming is much smaller. Five hundred seventy thousand. So I flipped them. But but yeah. e- either way, I think the Mets. If the Mets fans had a fight with all of the residents of Montana and Wyoming combined, I think we'd win. Those are some tough guys in Montana. Though. It's I true, think. but I think we outnumber them
1: by like threefold. So three. Sort of overweight from Queens, kind of <laughs> forest hills,
0: of overweight <laughs> retired public school teachers from forest hills yes. against, against like, a couple of cowboys. Yeah, yeah, you're right. They'll I think Montana
1: work. could take them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay, never mind. Um, not what's not a fight is not on Montana between Mets fans and you. Don't not don't, yet. don't even think that pay per view. We so could do it. We could it, you'd sell a lot. It's imagine if we tried line. to provoke them on TikTok with that, we wouldn't even be able they to, they wouldn't do know. It. Yeah, they have no way to find out. <laughs> Um, this is a topic Bradley begged off of a little bit when we when we when we sat down to talk about um, the show this morning. Um, but I it's not that I twisted his arm because I don't do that. But um, but Ron DeSantis is going to officially announce her president this week. It's like the big, like obvious thing that everyone was expecting to happen. It's finally happening. Um, you don't really want to talk about it because you feel like you tired. said your piece I on I, it. I, just, and- I
0: mean, once he does something newsworthy, the only thing I will say is uh, that was slightly newsworthy is you know he both got recorded or caught saying um, that only he and Biden were the people who could actually win. And then Bill Cassidy, who's a U.S. Republican senator from Louisiana, said the same thing publicly yesterday. Um, and so there's clearly among team this an electability argument. Um, I don't know if that works, because at the end of the day, the people who love Trump— are not if they were that pragmatic, they wouldn't love Trump in the first place, right? right? And so you're making a pragmatic argument on electability. And I think about candidates who make the electability argument. Ironically, they're the ones that aren't that electable, and they tend to lose. So right. I'm not sure that's a great path to go down.
1: Here's the thing I don't understand about DeSantis is it seems that um, there is an obvious need for in the Republican Party for a, an alternative to Trump, right? That's clear. Yep. Um, it also seems that, like, maybe you wouldn't want to be a sour, unpleasant guy. Um, like, that might be a good counterpoint to Trump. Like, like all his behavioral tics, like, he, he just seems, like, he seems, like, unpleasant. Like, and, and, yeah. and picking fights with, like, teachers groups and with Disney and all this stuff just seems like, like, isn't there just a much cleaner way for him to go well, about this? And it's, why would he do it? <laughs> Is it just because it's not him? Is he yeah, it just, it's, it's just it's a that. jerk? And, and, like, and
0: here's, here's, here's what really doesn't work in politics. If you try to be a different person, right? Then if, and you try to subvert your personality. Now, I remember, like uh, when Al Gore was running against Bush, and like Naomi Wolf or someone advised him to wear like more earth tones and I don't know, <laughs> famous, right? be more masculine or so- something like that. And like it never works, right? Every time that a politician tries to be who they're not, the voters have this incredible ability to sniff that out and reject it immediately. So, so if you're an asshole, just be an DeSantis asshole. DeSantis seems to be an asshole. That's who he is. Um, look, Trump certainly proved that authenticity matters a lot to voters. Even if you're authentically terrible, um, they seem to value that. And so, uh, no, if I were advising DeSantis, I would just say be, be who you are. Um, but so, look, he is certainly running into trouble where he is, taxed so far right to try to win the primary that the generals are starting to get difficult. Now I understand his view is if I'm in the general, who the fuck knows Biden could die, we could be, or a million things could happen, I'll take my chances. And that's the right strategy politically. Um, But again, like I think sometimes there's a cost benefit where each additional right wing thing you do, they get you more coverage on Fox um, you do have to weigh against the, the cost on the back end, and I'm not sure if they're really making those calculations. But the thing I wanted to talk about... Wait, can I, can I just yeah, ask sir. one more
1: question? I know I'm tiring you out here, but the, um, there was a, a profile Politico of, of, uh, of DeSantis' wife, Casey, and so there was a lot of blind quotes. I found a pretty enjoyable profile, but um, uh, one of them was, he's a vindictive motherfucker, she's twice that. Um, she's the scorekeeper. So at first you're like, oh, shit, that's so harsh. And then the other thing is like, but isn't it kind of just the nature of like political couples in particular that that's
0: maybe the way they talk? Like they, they have... Yeah, like, first of all, that's, a, that's the language of politics, right? right? It's very Vindic profane. It's right? very coarse. It's very everything. Um, the language of politics behind the scenes. For I'm, sure. Yeah. So 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 that's that's number one. Number two... Look, if you are a true political spouse, and it's not like you have your own career, and and many do at this point, but um, you live vicariously through your spouse, right? And effectively, their success is your success, their failure is your failure. And so uh, in a weird way, you may take it even more personally because you you don't have the perspective to dismiss something as, yeah, whatever— you just get outraged. just like right. why, why we see people online get outraged so easily. So, I don't know. With, with that said, um, it is very rare to never that a candidate's spouse is makes a major difference in the election one way or another, and I don't think she will either. Uh, okay, H- here's you, you who were about we to change the about, okay. So, Joe Biden will be 82 when he runs for his second term, 86 if he, if he lives through it and wins it. Um, it is reasonable to conclude that the chances of his vice president becoming president during his second term are far greater than usual. usual. Which means, while I don't think voters typically really pay much attention to who the VP is when they cast their vote for president, I think they will do more so this time. And I guess my question is really just, what is the Democratic Party doing to rehabilitate Kamala Harris, right? I mean, so she is a significant net negative. Her numbers are Terrible, And if you do believe that if she is a more impactful factor in this election, because voters will take a look at her in a way they normally wouldn't at the VP, um, then I think that, you know, it is in your interest, if you're Joe Biden, to rehabilitate her enough um, to make sure that she doesn't cost you votes.
1: So, so what would that look like? So obviously, they they, they trotted her out on immigration kind of early on. That- but that
0: seems like the opposite, right? right? It's like, let's give her an issue that has to—that that was like, let's take something that's a dumpster fire and maybe we can Throw just blame, her it. blame yeah. it on her <laughs> yeah. instead of us, right? But all that did actually look at a normal situation, or let's say this was his second term, fine, that might actually be, be a good, good narrative tactic, but— when her success and her approval ratings will have an impact on your election, I don't know if you can do that shit. So, uh,
1: w- what's the playbook there that works? Like, like obviously Clinton Gore, they didn't get along well personally, but it did seem to work, right? Yeah. Um, well, maybe they, maybe, they, maybe Obama Biden worked right. Like he he actually yeah. sort of let Biden have a have some space, a and- little more.
0: Yeah, I think Obama. Oh, I mean, I think Obama utilized Biden. Now, Biden's also just seemingly. More effective than Kamala Harris, right? right? Um, you know, I think you got to give her some really winning issues. Like, you know what? What are the winning issues? So maybe it is, she's a parent, right? Two so thirty. Is she a parent? Uh, she, has, she, has yes, she has
1: kids. I'll go look it up. I believe she has. Um, I'm, I don't think she. They're
0: her children, right? They're uh, like his, her husband's. Yeah, children right. from, from Whatever. She's a parent, um, and yeah, give her Section Two Thirty, right? Give her kind of responsible. Behavior on the internet. That's the kind of thing that parents would care about and you know if parents said she gets this um, That kind of implicitly goes a long way And so I would give her an issue like that that is really popular Bipartisan by the way because there are going to be both independents and even some Republicans who if Trump is a nominee Are going to consider Biden right because they're just not willing to vote for Trump Um, But give her something like that that is a real issue and then, by the way, have a real fucking plan to do it. And whether you pass the bill before the election or not, let the public see you fighting for it. Let them see her fighting for it and leading it so that there's an argument that either, A, this person's effective, keep them in the job, or B, they're getting pretty close on this thing, keep them in the job to finish the job. So either way, it just seems to me that- you have to do something. If they ignore her and just pretend she doesn't exist, she can cost them the election. Um, the one question of a little bit is like, okay, so then there's the- what do you give her? Fine, We maybe we solve that. She can't keep staff, right? She, as I understand it, people just won't work for her because she's... But
1: part such, of that is also uh, uh, like a, uh, an effect of her political marginalization too, right? That's so- some of it too,
0: for sure. But what, what you'd have to... You have to assume though, uh, and this is also based on conversations I've had over the years people who've worked for her, that if working with her is such an unpleasant experience and people just continually quit, the White House is going to have to find a few people who are... Really talented, who can shepherd her, and know it's going to be terrible to work with her, and through the election we'll do so anyway. Um, that sounds like an awesome job. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you know, if if you can't execute because there's no one around you to do the work because no one wants to stay, it's hard to be effective. Including, by the way, if she's leading the fight at two thirty, you need a really good fucking team on her side to run that campaign, right? So, anyway, point being, I, I think she's a. Uh, underappreciated factor in this race. I think she's a far bigger problem for Biden than people are acknowledging. And I think that if they don't deal with it, it, it could come back to cost the election.
1: Um Rahm Emanuel um, is is Yeah, is I just, just want to marvel for a second yeah, at the yeah, let's political
0: brilliance of Rahm.
1: So political brilliance of Rahm. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Overall, I mean so this is a guy who, you know, Rahm is as we know was the mayor of Chicago uh, two terms Effective in some ways, but really was kind of tone deaf on all the police brutality stuff and ultimately couldn't run for a third term because he was so unpopular. Um, But nonetheless, had a successful career overall as mayor, was a member of the House before that from Chicago, ran the C. helped the Democrats take back the House in 2006. Chief of Staff for Obama. Chief of Staff for Obama. I forgot that one. Um, So really, really successful guy, but also a very, very, very difficult human being. Right? Do you, but, have,
1: do you have many personal interactions with him? A lot, yeah. sure.
0: Because when I was deputy governor in Illinois, I dealt with him. Oh, all he was on your time. case. Yeah, all the time. So, and I, I kind of like. <laughs> Did Rahm he swear at you a lot? Constantly. If <laughs> in fact, I would even occasionally put him on speaker and like. Let, this is when Entourage was a big show, right. and Ari on Entourage is based on Ram's brother Ari manual in real life, right, right. and Ram and Ari are, are I guess pretty similar. So once in a while, if I was feeling like a particularly uh, devious or whatever the right word would be. Um, mischievous. Mischievous. I'd gather a few people in the office, if I had to like, call Rom back, I put him on speaker and I would say something to provoke him and then he would just go fucking yeah.
1: crazy like, and, like a David Mamet
0: play right, hang happening up the phone. right there. And then he calls back 9 seconds later and acts like nothing happened. But like, you know, uh he, he was so predictable it was funny, but but he, his political instincts are amazing. Generally speaking, the Laquan McDaniel Chicago police thing aside. Um Ron is now the ambassador to Japan because he kind of almost had nobody wants to work with him cuz he's such a difficult person so they don't want to put him in the cabinet um so and kind he doesn't of sh- want to
1: just work in private equity and
0: uh, no to his, you know i think he he likes money, being right? in government he has enough money his brother's a multi multi billionaire and so but he doesn't give him any though uh, I don't know. Well, Rom doesn't but, need it. But, but either way, um, so Rom's ambassador of Japan. And, you know, ambassadorships are mainly a worthless job, right? They don't really, like, they're for prestige, they're for donors. There's, I don't know, 15, 20 countries around the world, like in the Middle East or Russia or whatever, that are yeah. true hotspots. But the rest of it is, is just nonsense. Japan right? is such a good one, too, my God. And what? so, but Ram, you know, was helpful enough to Biden as I think, one, they had to reward him with something. And two, they want them as far away as they can send him. So Japan's a good one there. But Ram's fucking Rom, right? He's smart. So, so what he did? There's a bill in Japan. And I only learned about this in the paper yesterday, so it wasn't like I think he just jumped on it in the way that like a Rom or a Chuck Schumer just jumps on an issue for a Sunday press conference. Which is there's a bill in Japan that would ext- extend extend uh, gay rights further. And I think even pr- maybe legalize same sex marriage. It is a contentious issue within the Japanese legislature. Although, interestingly,
1: 70% of Japanese I read in the same article uh, support it. So
0: it's weird. It's like a thing where the political establishment doesn't like it, but the population does. Well, I don't know how the electoral system in Japan works, but if it's anything like the one here, the overall view of the public doesn't fucking matter (laughs) if they're not deciding who ultimately wins elections. Um, So Rom decides he's going to lobby hard to pass the gay rights bill in Japan. He has no business whatsoever getting involved in a domestic issue that has zero impact in the United States. But here's why he's so fucking smart. There's three outcomes here and they're all really good for him, right? So the, the, the first one is the bill passes. If, if there's a thousand points awarded in the passage of the bill, Rahm would maybe deserve like .01, .02, something like that. And yet, he will, for the rest of his life, take credit as this is the Rahm Emanuel bill where I'm the one... Freedom fighter? Yeah, that that secured gay rights in Japan. So if the bill passes, he makes it part of his legacy. It'll be in his obituary, all that other shit. Um, If the bill fails, uh, he is still at least seen as like, hey, he fought the good fight because at least back in his world in the U.S., Everyone who matters to him is very supportive, of obviously, of same-sex marriage and gay rights. Or let's say that—because th- there was a threat in the article from someone in Japan being like, we're going to have him—I guess if there's an ambassador to your country and you say to the, to the country that the ambassador's from, like, we will never meet with this person again, they kind of have to recall them, right? right. Um, so I guess Japan's saying, like, look, we can have him recalled, and we will if, if we need to. But for Rom. I'm sure he, you know, is, is making the most out of being ambassador and all that, but this is a guy who needs constant conflict, constant attention, and so effectively he gets to come home, come out of the woods a fucking hero, right? Because whether the bill fa- passes or fails, and I don't think he probably doesn't particularly give a shit that much one way or the other, um, he's the guy that, that put his job on the line and took all this risk to try to do what was right. And then that kind of opens back up in U.S. politics again. So, like— Do you think it really does? I think that it Open takes— Open up for what? It takes a guy whose career is limited not by his talent, not by his ambition, but by the fact that he's so, so difficult to deal with, that he's so disliked by people that people just don't want to fucking deal with him— um, and this sort of helps rehabilitate that a little bit. So what's interesting is, so Eric Garcetti, for example, is the um, U.S. ambassador to India, right? He was the mayor of L.A. Similar kind of thing, right? They, like, stuck him there because they didn't know what to do with him. They didn't want to put him in the cabinet.
1: These, these both sound like sitcoms, right? So what, what I have a question about Ram is, so does he just arrive in, in Japan for this sort of ceremonial job with, like, his guys from, from City
0: Hall? Like He's had some people from... All way back when, for people like when he was in Congress, and there are some people who have been on the team, but generally speaking, no, because he is so difficult to work for. He doesn't have any guys. <laughs> that I think it's hard to be a ROM person for, you know, an extended period of time. I know people who have been, and God bless them in a way, but, you know, I think working for ROM is all the experience I had working for Chuck Schumer, which is... It was two years where I learned an incredible amount. It was incredibly worthwhile from a career perspective. I enjoyed very little of it um, and would never, ever work with Chuck again in any capacity. Um, But I'm still glad that I did it. I I think that's probably the obit that most ROM staffers would give as well. It's
1: just so amazing to think of somebody like that. Like like we've talked many times uh, about the... Why, like working, say in local politics, is so great? Because you really have your hands on things, and you're, you know, you're you're making a difference in in tangible, you know, whether it's like getting parks opened or, you know, cleaning streets or whatever it is. Like, there's these real things that that it's real cause and effect. That like as you move higher up the sort of yeah. political food chain, it becomes sort of less less sort of Whoa. tangible. But but yeah. the question I have is like, how does someone like Rahm, who's like, go from City Hall, Chicago? To being like in this like Japanese like
0: luxurious life where like no one gives a shit about. I mean, he he has. Right, I think like he when Americans who are bigwigs come to Japan, he has dinner with them or hosts them at his embassy. Or and whatever he must it hate is. that. Um, yeah, I mean, I I talked to who was it? I talked to someone that saw him in Tokyo and said he seemed to be having
1: Just a good really time. Into sushi and but
0: but you know even with that a lot of kinds said, of massage. You know, you embrace the job. You do it really hard for 18 months, 24 months, whatever it is. Biden's been in office now a couple of years. Um, although Ron didn't get confirmed that quickly, it took a little while uh, because he's so disliked. Um, <laughs> that you know, there's going to come a point though where the fact that the job has no actual power um, is going to really start to grate on him, and he can do shit like what he's doing right now. Which again, like, I hope the bill passes too. Um, but I, it's it was even, and I don't think he's doing anything wrong per se. I was just more marveling at. The political dexterity and, and brilliance of Rahm Emanuel. AI regulation. You're you're hosting a um, uh, conversation with uh,
1: Lena Khan. Yeah. June 1st, and she had an editorial this week.
0: Yeah. So in the um, so June 1st, P&T Network 180 Orchard Street, Manhattan, 6 p.m. event. 6 Is that p.m. Right? Yeah. 6 p.m. Uh, You got to get a ticket, but they are free. So if you just go on the P&T site or just go to firewall.media, you can sign up and uh, attend. I do think we have. Uh, more spots than there is capacity, but some people will not show up or whatever. Um, So here's the thing, you know, what you texted me yesterday is to say, okay, do you want to talk about how to regulate AI? And what I wrote back was like, no, because I don't know how to regulate AI yet. But what I can talk about is, here's an intellectual framework that I would use to figure out how to go about regulating AI. And it seems to me that there are a handful of existential threats to humanity that exist, right? Nuclear weapons sort of being the most immediate threat because it could wipe us all out quickly. Um, A massive bioterrorist issue, you know, threat um, where there's a COVID but much, much more deadly um, that is invented in a lab and spread deliberately. Um, Climate change, which we're seeing the effects of already. And then fourth, maybe AI, right? Maybe there's a point where, um, human beings do actually lose control completely to the machines, um, and they are ruling us, and there are people like uh, Elon Musk who are making that case, right? So um, so if AI is one of the four great existential threats to humanity, it seems to me that if I were the president or whoever and I was trying to figure out how to regulate AI, I, I would start to say, what are the worst possible outcomes of AI? What are the ways in which they can be the most destructive to society? So like being able to launch nuclear missiles without any sort of human approval or human ability to stop it or whatever it is, and worry less about all of the specific uses and, and just think bigger about like, okay, does this thing have the ability to destroy humanity? And then what I would do is I'd go to 50 experts privately and say, tell me, write me up a report that says two things. One, how could AI destroy humanity? And B, knowing what we know today, what could we do about it, right? And then I would take those 50 reports, and I would synthesize it and say, is there a point of view that seems to be somewhat predominant here among the experts, and does it make sense? And are there ideas on how to regulate it workable within the system governance that we have, right? And then in working with you know uh, th- th- that group or some subset of that group. You can say, okay, these are what we believe to be are the greatest risks based on what we know today. These are the things that we can do to try to mitigate that risk Starting today, this will be the beginning of our AI our regulatory policy. And like, at the end of the day, AI is going to be. And I see this in our portfolio companies. We don't really invest in, in that many AI per se companies. But our portfolio companies are using AI as tools to do the work that they do, whether it's in fintech or health tech or transportation or gambling or whatever it is, AI is a tool now. I mean, I'm working on this like sports debating gambling project just for fun and like AI is a big part of our, our, our what we're doing
1: so like it's amazing uh, to see like what what the
0: capacity are when you really drill into a specific area like yeah, that we've solved a huge pro- we think we hopefully have solved what was a, an existential problem for this tiny little business um, through AI but the point is we're not an AI company right so AI is you going may not to want to be an AI company right isn't doesn't it seem like the
1: tool is going to be way more like sort of Useful for companies
0: rather than building your own engines or yeah, I mean we're look through you know the, what we're working on is a site um, that will let people debate different topics first starting with sports, and you'll get a prompt and you can submit uh, up to a 500 word response and AI judges and we've been training the training the modules and working with them and creating different personas and things like that. Um, we'll pick the winner and you'll get a prize and then eventually we'll expand that out to, to entry fees and people can bet on themselves and ultimately you can bet on third parties. Um, but yeah, AI judging is the only way to do it that's both fair um, and scalable. And because we've been running these experiments over and over and over again, we're now seeing pretty consistent results in the way that the judging takes place, which is what gives us the freedom to, uh, to do this. In fact, we're going to drop the first prompt um, sometime this week, maybe Wednesday. So if you're hearing this on Tuesday, it could be tomorrow. So if you go to runnerupmedia.com, um, you can find that. So anyway, but the point is this. AI is uh, going to be a component of basically everything. And yes, most things are regulated. And I'm glad they are because that's what keeps me in business. But um, I think what you have to start with is the greatest potential harm and work backwards and uh, that would be the existential threat to destroying humanity itself. And so uh, that's where I would start if I were uh, Joe Biden. I think we should do one more topic. OK. Um, and the, I'm going I'm
1: to give you the option. I actually have my, my, my preference, but I'm going to see if, you, if it corresponds with yours.
0: Is this about New York sinking into Venice again?
1: No, no. I, I mean, that's one of the ones we could talk about. But I, let's, just, let's just talk about the So the MTA... Unveiled huh. new designs for subway turnstiles because it, it's, it's incredible. I, I guess the uh, across all the different uh, buses, trains, subway, etc. The the MTA is losing six hundred ninety million dollars a year in fare evasion, yeah. which is uh, pretty incredible. But you, you do see it all the time, so it's not yeah. it's not surprising. So they have this new this new design where where they're going to have these sort of much higher kind of plastic barriers that are going to make it. I'm sure people will figure out a way to get through them, but the but it'll make it a lot more difficult. Yeah. So um, you,
0: I... I. So, so, so Lyle and I were actually done this train yesterday. Okay. He, for some reason, is extremely interested in the concept of fares. He doesn't want to beat fares. He, he's uh, very against it. He wants it yeah. to end. Yeah, good. A, and um, we were talking about it because we happened to get onto the our train through one of those, like the full turnstile where you have to kind of push like a revolving door type things. And his question was sort of, well... If everything was like this, wouldn't we not have fair jumping? I said, yes, but you have to sort of weigh that against the cost of building and buying and installing all these things. And it is slower, right, to get through that. And so in terms of... throughput I hate those. Th- everybody hates them. But in terms of the throughput, you know, what is the cost, both in terms of, of time and productivity and all that, plus the cost of buying and installing these things compared to the $690 million that you're losing from... From the fair beating. But, but but here's to me maybe the more interesting question, which is we keep doubling down on the same system, right? Which is we have this mass transit system, it's the lifeblood of our city, it's how we survive, bah, bah. Ba. And and look, I use the subway most days, and and so I, I agree with that. But every time that we want to do something to materially improve the mass transit system, it is a Twenty-year, twenty-billion-dollar project, at least, right? Whether it's Second Avenue Subway, Seven or Side Access, or Seven Train, and by the way, these are still fairly minor. These are sort of little, small extensions. within they, yeah, they're the, not new systems. Manhattan, they're just, they're just, right? yeah, right. Um, and so, every time that you want to fundamentally change it, you're talking about tens and tens of billions of dollars that you don't have, right? And that the two seventy-five fare cannot. Not to mention it. decades you don't have, right? So you put all that together. What if we said, you know what, let's say that we do hit a world in five years, 10 years, whatever it is, where all cars can't drive themselves, right? And all cars are self-driving, and they can all drive at a high speed safely at the same time, which means that we can process a lot more vehicles through, you know, the the same streets that we have right now. Um, And um, as a result of that, we can move people around a lot faster and a lot safer, Maybe instead of sort of doubling down on a 100-year-old mo- system that is almost impossible to meaningfully change or expand, what if we said, what's the infrastructure that we would need to have full capacity of self-driving cars and a city where everyone gets around um, either by walking or uh, in a self-driving car? Do you mean bus, also like self-driving is. buses too? Is that Sure, it could, your- could be that, right? right? It could be flying taxis, you know, it could be a bunch of things. But the point is... We have a system that's incredibly old. It does work reasonably well, but changing it in meaningful ways is unbelievably hard, or maybe more accurately, basically impossible. If you said, like, I mean, I can't even figure out how to build a train to the subway, I mean, a, a, to the airport, let alone, like, Sydney. significantly increase, expansion in, in the boroughs. Um, and so maybe rather than just doing the same thing that is almost impossible, we just look ahead instead and say, what do we need to do to bring this new world about? What kind of infrastructure will we need to accommodate this new world? Um, you know, like, I don't see why the Department of Transportation here couldn't have a futurist on the team. Well, we should have somebody come in. We, we had the Flying Car Guy uh,
1: who wrote that interesting book a couple of years ago. Yeah. But it'd be interesting. Like, uh, uh, there, there, sh- there must be a futurist who works with the MTA, right? I mean, they... <sighs> <laughs>
0: I mean, like, I've never seen that person, if so. They
1: should have one, though. Isn't that kind of what you're talking about? I mean, they, they should
0: have one It's just like... They should, but, but again, the MTA's business model is underground trains and, and above-ground buses, and so are they willing to do things that are against their own interests? It's a little bit like, this is a, a bit of a, of a random tangent, but did you read the article in The New Yorker about Planned Parenthood? Uh, no. Your guy didn't recommend it in his sub
1: You know, I didn't. It, when, was it last week? Yeah, something like that.
0: Okay, so he, he usually takes a week.
1: So, so um, someone
0: sent it to me because it was relevant. Wait, to, wait, you read a New Yorker article? Yeah, because it was relevant specifically. You don't to, read the ones I send you. Because this was about passing our legislation oh, on, on protecting doctors for our teleabortion okay, project. Okay, fine. Um, and the, it was a very critical article, and I thought very well, On Planned Parenthood. Yes, and I thought very warranted in the sense of you have this group that, you know, clearly wants to help women, clearly these people mean well, but um, they have become captives of their own bureaucracy and the decisions that they make prioritize the success of Planned Parenthood's financial well-being and their reputation and everything else uh, ahead of actually helping women have access to um abortions. And, you know, uh, we've seen this a little bit in the tele-abortion stuff that we're working on, where I think Planned Parenthood at best has been um, unsure about whether or not to support us, not because they don't agree that this could uh, be the only scalable solution to provide abortion access to women in red states, but they are a brick-and-mortar business model, as they put it to us. And tell abortion is not a brick-and-mortar approach. And so point being, much in the same way that Planned Parenthood, because they've been around for a long time and because they have built such an infrastructure and such a bureaucracy and such an organizational culture that now uh, that's actually undermining their mission itself, I I think you'd have the same problem at the MTA, where um, it would require... Destruction of everything that they purport to believe in and care about and and their own reason for existence and jobs and salaries and pensions and healthcare, care and everything else that, like, yeah, you could stick one or two futurists in an office, but I worry that the people who run the MTA um, will never have the balls to put themselves out of a job. Um, for the record, I just looked it up. My, my guy,
1: Bradley uh, referred to, who I'd say, um, who I don't know, by the way, but who writes a substack called Last Week's New Yorker, where he goes through every issue. In fact, picked that piece as the must read of the last of the issue of go. May 15th. There you go. That's The Planned Parenthood Problem by AL Press. All
0: right. Um, so do, you recommend, do you have recommendation, or are we?
1: I'll give you one quick recommendation. Um, and it's too long a story to explain why, but I, I rewatched the original uh, Bad News Bears, and it's fucking awesome. Oh my god! It's That's, such a better movie than I had any idea. Although there's, it's they, funny you they say they
0: that do, because we, we the, I showed that to the kids. We showed that to the kids maybe like eight, nine years ago, and they just what the hell, Dad? That movie, I thought, hey, you name a Rachel epithet, a slur of any kind, <laughs> and they had it right. Over, Coming out of the mouths of eleven year olds, I know. Yeah. Right, and I remember we were sitting there thinking like, well. We're almost kind of paralyzed. We we can stop the movie so they don't keep hearing this, but then we're sort of calling attention to it, or because it didn't seem like anything was, they were so little that it was kind of all just going over their heads anyway, or we can just kind of let it go and just not call their attention to it at all. We chose the passive approach of just letting it go. Well, there's one really bad thing at the beginning, and then it sort of. i horrified at how, you know, I'm not generally that easily offended but and i don't know if i would have cared that much if if my two little kids weren't watching right. with me but so what did you like about it so much
1: well two things i really liked the the sort of differential between parenting then versus now and the you know the the the, the just complete freedom these kids had was like sort of totally exciting and i just thought the buttermaker character was awesome you know, like, the the, the, the it's, it's like a coming-of-age story of, like, a 55-year-old alcoholic, basically. This is Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau. I mean, he's just, he's just excellent. Also, Tatum O'Neill. So I, I want to— So I what wanna, happened to her? Well, I mean, she didn't, quite,
0: like— have, did she, Was she, like, have a big drug thing or something? Yes. Okay. She married
1: John McEnroe. Right. Um, and then right. she had a bunch of big problems. But, you know, I think she's actually recovered Done all right. Like, But if you watch—so here's a movie that you could watch. It's a little profane, but certainly your kids are older. Uh, we, but her first movie, Paper Moon, did you ever watch that? heard of it. Okay, amazing. She, so that's before Bad News Bears. So if you look at those two movies and you look at Tatum O'Neill in it, you just think like, wow, this this is like, this person's going to be the biggest star on earth. And she really, it's funny, the movies that she made right after that, I looked at them, were actually really lame. Um, so she didn't Was she get and Willow? Good, what's that? Was she in Willow? I don't know. I haven't seen oh, Willow. No, I hate that. Okay. Anyway, bad news bears. Uh, with with Bradley's caveat, I think is, is actually a good one. It's not one to watch with your children necessarily, and there are. I mean, they, they there's a there's a there's a use of the n word in particular in there that comes up pretty early in the movie. It's it's shocking because it's like an 11 year old kid very casually using it, and um, it's, uh, it's 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 going to offend some people for sure, maybe everybody. But it but it it uh, the 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 care. Other than that, of the movie um, and the, the complexity of the story, I, I just I was I couldn't believe how good it was, and I just remember it as a silly movie from when I was a kid. So, all
0: right, um, do you my have a recommendation rec- I do, okay. and it is a food recommendation, and it is only relevant if you live in uh, New York City, Cairo, or Riyadh. Uh, but there is a Egyptian fast casual place called Zuba, unlike like Kenmare. This is a good recommendation. Lafayette. And uh, it's fucking delicious. I've been there four times. It's right near my apartment, but I've been there four times in the last couple of weeks since I kind of stumbled. That's a very it. Bradley thing to do. Just uh, took Lyle there yesterday. It turns out a friend's parent owns it, uh, and, really? they, and it turns out the, the kids went there. Lyle had already been there on an he takes Arabic on an Arabic field trip for for school. Um, Let's just say the name again. Zuba Z O O B A, and we looked it up yesterday. So they've got a bunch of locations in Cairo. A couple in KSA. There's some sort of to-go ghost kitchen thing in Kuwait, and then there's this one in New York, and it is delicious. It is healthy. It is you know reasonably inexpensive. Um, You know, Lyle and I probably had a full meal yesterday for thirty-five bucks for the two of us. Um, And so, yeah, uh, I I normally don't recommend sort of you know fast food restaurants, but in this case, uh, if you are in the mood for some. Fast casual Egyptian that's really delicious and inexpensive and reasonably healthy. Check it out. See you next week, Bradley. Yeah.